John chapter 19 includes John's account of Jesus' time on the cross, and it includes a cryptic aside that helps us understand what Jesus may have meant when he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Did you know he was quoting scripture when he said that? Welcome to episode 24, My God, My God. Well, welcome back to the Rethinking Scripture podcast. This is Greg Hall, and I realized something this last week. I've still got lots of things to rethink about, so I'm back for another episode, and I'm committed to this. And by the looks of it, you are too, because a few weeks ago, we launched the All America Listener Challenge. And all the updates on our progress are available at RethinkingScripture.com. This week, we welcome listeners in cities called Fresno, Petersham, and Coffeyville. And I realized that I would be interested in buying a house on Half Calf Street in Coffeyville, Kansas, if that even exists. And we had a couple of international firsts this week as well. A missionary friend in Peru not only listened to last week's episode, but he also was the first to contact me via the new contact form on the website. So let me just break down how this all happened. First, he listened to the podcast, and then he went to the website and he sent me a message. And if you're a podcaster, that is gold right there. And I absolutely love it when a plan comes together. On a slightly different note, this is my very first Thanksgiving podcast, and I'd like to take a moment here at the beginning for some reflection, because I attended a graveside service for a friend this last week, and that service followed the German Baptist Brethren tradition of burial, and I had not been a part of anything like this before. After the casket was lowered into the ground, Those in attendance took turns grabbing shovels and scoop by scoop moved dirt into the grave until it was full. It was the friends of the deceased that were the ones helping him along in his journey. And it was a moving event. And it was a good reminder this Thanksgiving why this whole podcast exists. Because even though they can be confusing at times, I believe the scriptures to be true. I believe they explain what happens when we die. I believe that because of Jesus' time on the cross, the events that we'll be talking about in this very episode, humanity now has a solution to the ultimate problem of life, the problem of death. It's the scriptures that say that my friend's life didn't end when his body stopped working. That's the biblical worldview. And if that's really the truth, it is truly amazing. And it's something to be thankful for, not just today or this week, but every day. So come with me and let's dive into those scriptures, especially John chapter 19 this week, and see what we can rethink today. One of the privileges that I've had over the last few years is the opportunity to not only travel to Israel, the Holy Land area, but also to lead some groups over there. And it's one of the places that almost every group goes to when they get to Jerusalem that we'll be talking about here at the beginning of the podcast. And it ties in to John chapter 19, verses 16 and 17, which says, 
So he, Pilate, then handed him, Jesus, over to them to be crucified. Verse 17. They took Jesus, therefore, and he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place called the place of the skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha. There is a hillside in Jerusalem today where some think that the rock face resembles a skull with some eye sockets and maybe a nose and a mouth. And it's this hillside that's also adjacent to a place called the Garden Tomb. And sometimes the representatives of the Garden Tomb suggest to their visitors that this rock face that's next door might be the location of the crucifixion because of the way that the rock face at least looked when it was first discovered back in the 1800s. I think this could be faulty for a couple of reasons, and I'll just talk about it briefly here. The suggestion that this is the place where Jesus was actually crucified is largely dependent upon what the rock face looked like in the late 1800s and early 1900s. It was identified in the 1840s as a possible site, and later Charles Gordon in the 1860s suggested that it very well could be the actual site of Calvary. And if you go on a tour of the garden tomb, there's a place where they have benches and you sit down and you look at this rock face and they have a picture of what the site looked like several decades ago. And they do this because the rock face has deteriorated in the last hundred years. And to be honest, it no longer really looks much like a skull. And if there's been that much change in the last 100 years, it is certainly faulty to think that it wouldn't have changed even more in the 1800 years since the crucifixion actually took place. In reality, we likely have no idea what this hill looked like at the time of the crucifixion. And along those same lines, it's not just the place of Calvary where some people have suggested different site locations where it might have happened, but it's also the site of the tomb of Jesus that has a couple different leading places where people go. One of those is the garden tomb that I just mentioned before. The other traditional site, which actually encompasses a possibility of Calvary and the tomb within the same building, is the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And that has been the traditional site of the crucifixion since the 4th century AD. And let me just say, it no longer looks anything like it originally did because a church has literally enveloped the entire site. And while the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is overwhelmingly the more likely candidate, it's the Garden Tomb and Gordon's Calvary that is the popular favorite of many that visit the site because of how it currently looks. The Garden Tomb is a great place for reflection. I've had communion there many times, and there is actually a tomb hewn out of rock that you can walk into. It's a great visual picture. So much better, actually, than the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. But the problem is that there's really no chance that the Garden Tomb is the right one. Not that I rely on Wikipedia a lot, but they've got a good article on the Garden Tomb. I'll put a link in the show notes. It says that the tomb has been dated by Israelis to the 8th or 7th centuries BC. So the tomb that you're actually seeing when you go to the Garden Tomb is much older than one that would have been hewn out of a rock in Jesus' day. 
It goes on to say, the reuse of old tombs was not an uncommon practice in ancient times, but this would contradict the biblical text that speaks of a new, not a reused tomb, made for himself by Joseph of Arimathea. Also, it goes on to say, the trough in front of the tomb and the nearby cistern, described by proponents of the garden tomb as part of the tomb's ceiling system and the surrounding garden source of water, respectively. They have both been archaeologically dated to the Crusader period. That's the 12th and the 13th century AD. So while it's a great visual package, when you go to visit the garden tomb, the dates are all wrong for everything that's presented there. To be an actual site that should be considered for what we read about here in the Gospels. And when I take people to Israel, <laughs> I'm very careful because the garden tomb, some people really, really like the garden tomb. And I get it. I do too. I like it. And sometimes I mention some of these facts that we've been talking about to people when they ask, hey, what are the chances that the garden tomb is the real site of Jesus's tomb? And I usually say, it's like one in a million. But because they really want it to be the place, they look at me and they say, so you're telling me there's a chance. And some of you just recognize that as a line from the 1994 movie Dumb and Dumber. You know the one where Jim Carrey's character Lloyd really wants to believe that he has a chance of dating Mary, the girl he's been chasing the whole movie. If you've not seen the movie, it really might be worth exchanging an hour and 46 minutes of your life to understand the reference. And at this point, you might be asking, why did I weave a line from a culturally iconic movie into today's podcast? Well, I did it to make a point. For those of you that have seen the movie and understood the reference when I said it, you immediately understood what I was doing. I was pulling a line from popular culture to help bring understanding to another situation. In this case, the Garden Tomb's chances of authenticity. And if you understood the reference, you immediately understood that, so you're telling me there's a chance. Those weren't my words, but that I was borrowing them. And in turn, I also borrowed the original context in which those words were spoken. And this is an example of what Jesus did with one of his statements on the cross. No, he didn't quote from a movie. He borrowed a line from a culturally iconic lament. And his audience would have immediately understood what he was doing. So to help set this up a little bit, let's jump back into John chapter 19, and we'll be in verses 19 through 22, and we'll be focusing in on the inscription that was put on the cross by Pilate. And it was likely placed there because Pilate was trying to insult the Jews. They had used their influence to box him in to the crucifixion of Christ. And so he, in a desperate attempt, I think, to get a jab in, put this placard on the cross with Jesus. This inscription ended up with Jesus's name and the title of king. And this is a detail that might get lost in all the other details that are going on in this chapter. The placard above Jesus is mentioned in all four gospels. What does that mean? It means it's highly important. 
It's one of those rare things that has made it into every gospel account. In John, the placard is said to have read, Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. Matthew says the placard read, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. When Mark describes it, he simply just says, the King of the Jews. And when Luke brings this into his account, the placard reads, this is the King of the Jews. And as I read through all those, you might have noticed that the common thread is not Jesus' name, but it's his title. Only two of the gospel authors mention that Jesus' name was on the inscription, but all four mention the title King of the Jews. And I just got to ask the question, why would it be that each of the gospel writers focused on that point, that Jesus was King? And I believe it's at least partially because this scene, Jesus on the cross, it was predicted and described by another of Israel's kings centuries earlier. And it's words that are attributed in the Old Testament to King David that Jesus borrows that day on the cross when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Those words are not found in John. They're in Matthew 27, 46. You can find them again in Mark 15, 34. So you might be asking, why am I talking about those words in this context in John if he didn't choose to include those? It's because I believe John's giving a head nod to those gospels that were written earlier than his, and he's including some details to invite you to consider what the other gospels already say. Let's see how it plays out. In John 19, 19, we are told about the inscription that Pilate put on the cross. Then in the next three verses, the Jews argue with Pilate about that claim, saying Jesus had only claimed to be a king, and they, like that, distinguished on the inscription. Pilate does not give in to their request, and he responds in verse 22, what I have written, I have written. Then, right after that, John immediately talks about what the soldiers are doing. And you might remember, they're dividing up Jesus's garments. And he focuses in on how they cast lots for the seamless tunic. And then John gives us an aside. We talked about asides in the last episode. John slips out of the narrative and says that this casting of lots for clothing was to fulfill the scripture. And then he quotes, they divided my outer garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. That's a quote from Psalm 22:18. So John and the other gospel authors make sure to include the inscription that this man hanging on the cross is considered the king of the Jews. And then specifically in Matthew and Mark and John, the authors tie that idea to words that a previous king of Israel had said centuries before that tie the events of that day back to Psalm 22. And that's the one that begins by David saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is quoting the first line of Psalm 22 from the cross. There are some passages in the Bible that have just been greatly misunderstood, and the scenes of Jesus on the cross are not exempt from our confusion. 
It was while Jesus was on the cross that he cried out with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Gospels of Matthew and Mark both record these words. And there's no debate within conservative evangelical camps that Jesus said these words. But there are very different conclusions that people have come to regarding what Jesus meant when he said those words. From these texts, it has been commonplace for some to conclude that when Jesus became our sin sacrifice on the cross, that God, the Father, was required to separate himself from his Son while Jesus was bearing the curse of God's judgment. While this is hard to even conceive of, it has caused people to create new theological categories to solve the difficulties. Some try to distinguish that this was a judicial separation as opposed to a relational separation. And to be honest, I'm not sure how to separate those two, but others have tried. And for those that present a theological and scriptural argument about the abandonment of the Son by the Father, none of the texts that they offer specifically support the idea that the Father had to separate himself from the Son. This thought is simply driven from interpreting Jesus' statement outside of its original context. They assume that when Jesus said those words, he was addressing his Father, which kind of makes sense because that's what it sounds like if you're outside the cultural river that he was floating down. Within the culture that he said that, everyone would have understood that he was quoting the first line of a lament attributed to King David. And they not only would have recognized the first line of that as a lament, they would have understood immediately the entire context of the entire psalm that begins that way. So it's that original context on which we will focus for the remainder of the episode. And for some help with that original context, I'm going to lean on a 2006 article by Keith Campbell, which was featured in Faith and Mission, Volume 24. When he wrote the article, Campbell was a PhD student in New Testament Biblical Studies. He eventually graduated with his PhD. He now works for Global Scholars, which, according to their website, is an organization that equips Christian professors to have a redemptive influence among their students, their colleagues, and their universities. I'll put a link to their website in the show notes. So we have Jesus on the cross quoting the first line of Psalm 22, which is a type of literature that's called a lament. It follows a specific formula that was very common in Old Testament literature, would have been well known within the culture that Jesus was in. Campbell, in his article, says this, The defining moment of Israel's history was their deliverance from Egypt, which became a paradigm for the written literature of Israelite posterity. Embedded in the monumental deliverance from Egypt is the seminal stage of Israel's lament. First, it's their oppression. We read about that in Exodus 1, 6 through 22. And then, after the oppression is described, the next stage of a lament results in the actual lamenting. We see that in Exodus 3, 7. And then, that lament prompts a promise from God, Exodus 3, 8, which then leads to their rescue by God, Exodus 15, 1 through 21. 
Campbell says that because the lament, that pattern that we just talked about, is intrinsically intertwined with such a watershed event, and since the Old Testament writers imitated and expounded upon the lament, it has implicit significance upon Old Testament theology. Breaking away from Campbell, what he suggests is that monumental event of Israel going into slavery and God's response to their lament of their situation and his redemption of them created a pattern of how people in the Old Testament communicated with God. And laments followed this general pattern. And later in Scripture, even though other events weren't maybe as monumental as the oppression in Egypt was, authors followed the pattern of the lament in communicating their circumstances to God and calling out to them and expecting a response and salvation by him. And that's what we find in Psalm 22. But Campbell says this, The righteous but afflicted man of Psalm 22 cries out to God in lament. And that's after vehemently inquiring about being forsaken in verse 1. He agonizes because he is scorned by men, verse 6, surrounded by bulls and roaring lions, verse 12, and poured out like water, verse 14. Evil men encircle him and pierce his hands and his feet, verse 16, and divide his garments by casting lots, verse 18. In spite of this, and here's the key to understanding the lament in Psalm 22 that everybody around the cross that day would have understood. Campbell says, in spite of this, the sufferer in Psalm 22 responds with praise to God. This declaration of praise transitions the reader into 11 verses of thanksgiving for God's assured deliverance, verses 23 through 31. Campbell finishes this way, Psalm 22 then flows from lament to response to thanksgiving. Furthermore, Campbell says, Matthew, the author, intends his readers to see the entirety of Psalm 22, the whole lament, in other words, in his use of Psalm 22, verse 1, from Jesus on the cross. And that's a very important aspect. The Psalms that we have today are numbered, but the Psalms in Jesus' day, they were not numbered. And one of the ways that they identified what psalm that they were talking about, because they couldn't give a number, they would quote the first line of the psalm. It would be like me saying, oh, you know that psalm that I'm talking about, the one that begins, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And some of you that know your Bible might recognize that very quickly as Psalm 23, but I, not knowing the number, let's say, could refer to it from the opening line. And thus, by repeating the opening line, I'm referring not just to that one line, but I'm referring to the whole context of the entire psalm. And this is what Jesus was doing on the cross that day. And my guess is that you haven't read the entirety of Psalm 22 in a while, if ever. Because most people don't even realize that Jesus was quoting scripture on the cross. I was in my master's program in a Bible survey class, a New Testament Bible survey class, when I realized for the first time that Jesus was quoting scripture on the cross. And that just got me asking questions. Well, what's the context of the scripture that he's quoting? And so let's do that right now. Let's go to the original context and remind ourselves what it says. So I'm just going to be reading Psalm 22 in its entirety. 
verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. O my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I have no rest. That's the first two verses. It sounds pretty bleak, but listen to the change that starts as early as verse 3. Yet you are holy, you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. In you the fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were delivered. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. But I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag the head, saying, Commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, because he delights in him. Yet you are he who brought me forth from the womb. You made me trust when upon my mother's breast. Upon you I was cast from birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They open wide their mouth at me as a ravening and a roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws. And you lay me in the dust of death, for dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and they stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. But you, O Lord, be not far off. O you, my help, hasten to my assistance. Deliver my soul from the sword, my only life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth. From the horns of the wild oxen, you answer me. I will tell of your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you descendants of Israel, for he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him for help, he heard. From you comes my praise in the great assembly. I shall pay my vows before those who fear him. The afflicted will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust will bow before him. Even he who cannot keep his soul alive, posterity will serve him. It will be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They will come and will declare his righteousness to a people who will be born that he has performed it. That's Psalm 22 in its entirety. And you may have noticed that the first two verses, yeah, are very critical and seem like the original author, David, may have felt forsaken. But you got to realize that that is the form of a lament. That is the accepted way that laments are written with the knowledge that they don't 
end there. Laments have a literary way of working from an opening statement like this, and it works through to the deliverance of God. And people that were familiar with laments back in Jesus' day would have understood that a statement like, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, not only brings in the context of Psalm 22, which is a psalm that prophesied the events that were happening right there at the cross. So it's not only a prophetic psalm, but they would also have understood that line that Jesus was saying as the beginning of a lament that ends with deliverance. And in our modern context, if we don't understand that Jesus is quoting scripture and we don't understand the progression of a lament, we're likely to come to some pretty crazy conclusions about what Jesus was trying to communicate there on the cross. I'd like to outline three options that I've come up with for how to understand Jesus's statement. These are potential ways that one could maybe understand Jesus saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The first, let's just assume that one option is that Jesus is just making a straightforward statement directed to his father and that he didn't know he was quoting scripture. Or maybe he was in uh, such pain that he forgot that this was part of a psalm and he just came up with it on his own. And if this is the case, if it's a statement that Jesus comes up with on his own, not because he knows it's scripture and he says it directly to the Father, he obviously feels forsaken. And it would be a logical conclusion that he would actually have been forsaken because Jesus couldn't have been wrong in his feelings. But let me just ask, is it possible that Jesus wasn't aware that he was quoting scripture? I I think we have to answer that no. (laughs) Jesus knew the scripture better than anyone. He was the fulfillment of scripture. Campbell has something to say out of his article. He says this, when Matthew quotes Psalm 22, 1, three factors make clear that for his astute readers, that's Matthew's original readers, He had the content of the whole psalm in mind. Matthew introduces the reader to Psalm 22 before he or she traverses verse 46. Because back in verse 35, he alludes to Psalm 22, 18. And then again in verse 39, Matthew alludes to Psalm 22, 7. In verse 43, he alludes to Psalm 22, 8. So before he even gets to the statement of Jesus quoting the first line, Matthew has already set the reader up by quoting three other places from that psalm. Campbell continues, These allusions prompt the astute reader to realize that Matthew sets Jesus' crucifixion within the literary context of Psalm 22. Jesus' crucifixion holistically coincides with Psalm 22. Like the innocent sufferer in Psalm 22, Jesus is scorned by men. He is pierced in his hands and his feet and is humiliated by men who cast lots for his garments. Moreover, just as the sufferer ultimately experiences deliverance in the psalm, Jesus also experienced deliverance via the resurrection. But you might ask, isn't it possible that Jesus may have been in so much pain that he lost his senses and his faculties? and maybe just quoted this out of just raw emotion. 
Well, to that, we can look at the other things that Jesus said on the cross and kind of weigh whether those made sense too. So just by looking at the other statements that Jesus has on the cross, I don't think it's possible that he was in so much pain that he lost his senses and control of his faculties. And if this quote of Psalm 22.1 is an actual question that Jesus is asking of the Father, waiting for a response, doesn't Jesus already know the answer to the question? Of course he does. If it was just that simple and the Father indeed had to forsake Jesus, Jesus would have already known why. And the question, standing by itself, doesn't even make sense. So what's another way that we could look at this? Let's assume that Jesus was talking to the Father when he said it. He had control of his mental faculties, and he knew that he was quoting Scripture. Well, since Jesus was the fulfillment of Scripture, we can assume that Jesus knew the whole passage, the whole psalm. Campbell comments this way. Another issue is related to Jesus' literal speaking of Psalm 22.1 from the cross. Did he, like Matthew, intend his hearers to contextualize his quote of Psalm 22? That's a good question. Back to Campbell. Jesus, in his temptation account, shared by all three synoptic gospels, reveals not only his scriptural knowledge, but also his consideration of its context. Realizing that Satan quotes Psalm 91, 11, and 12 out of context, Jesus corrects him by quoting Deuteronomy 8, 3 in its context. Since Jesus was well aware of contextual issues in the Old Testament interpretation, and since Psalm 22 naturally coincides with the actual events in which Jesus lived, then it is reasonable to assume that he contextualized the psalm. If Jesus then saw himself within the context of Psalm 22, then it follows that the gospel writers did the same. So breaking away from Campbell, if Jesus knew that the psalmist was feeling forsaken at the beginning of the psalm that he was quoting, that's the context, he would also then know that by the end of that same psalm, the true conclusion was that God had not despised nor abhorred the afflicted, nor did he hide his face from him, but that when he cried to him for help, that God actually heard. That's the conclusion that David came to in the lament. Jesus would have known that full context when he quoted the first line. So if Jesus was actually trying to communicate that he was being forsaken by the Father, ironically, this is the absolute worst thing he could have said to convey that fact. The whole point of the psalm is to stress the fact that God does not forsake his people. If Jesus was quoting this scripture in its original context, Jesus knew that he was not forsaken, but that God was with him. And if Jesus knew all of this, to suggest to those around him that he was forsaken would have been deceptive. This second option, then, is not an option. Jesus wasn't talking to the Father when he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was in control of his mental faculties, and he knew he was quoting Scripture. Well, what other option is there? Jesus was talking to the people in the crowd. Jesus knew the passage in its entirety. He knew many in the crowd also knew the passage in its entirety, and he quoted the first line of the psalm to reference the entire psalm. 
He was trying to point out to those standing around the cross that Psalm 22 was being fulfilled before their very eyes. It's like Jesus was saying, hey, do you notice that they've pierced my hands and my feet? Look right over there. The soldiers, they're casting lots for my garments. I've been surrounded by evildoers. Things look bleak. Does that sound familiar at all? So in contrast, when Jesus's statement is read as a quote of an Old Testament messianic psalm, it brings new meaning to the whole situation. Jesus, by quoting the first line of Psalm 22, is saying these words not as a cry of desperation to his father, but rather as a wake-up call to those who surrounded him. He was saying that the events of the day were a fulfillment of that specific Old Testament psalm. In this light, his quote of the Old Testament psalm becomes another affirmation that he is, in fact, still moving step in step with the Father's plan of redemption. Campbell concludes his article this way. He says, in essence, given the influence of the lament on the writing of the Old Testament and the number of quotes and allusions to it in the Gospels, certainly a stronger link exists between the Old Testament lament and the Gospels that has not yet been fully established. Well, that's all I've got for today. And let's be honest. Isn't that enough for one day? (laughs) Hey, if you have some extra time this week, and I know you do because I'm releasing this on a national holiday in the States, I'd like some help. My analytics tell me that most of you are listening through just a couple different streaming services. And if you're enjoying the content, you can help others find the podcast by giving it a five-star rating. It's a simple and easy click, no matter which streaming service you're using. And if some of you wouldn't mind going the extra mile by writing a short review to let others know what you think, that would be greatly appreciated. It's those reviews that really encourage new listeners to dive into the podcast. In the next episode, we'll take a closer look into the empty tomb, and we'll talk about how Jesus interacted with Israel's four fall feasts. It's going to be a fascinating study on the fulfillment of the Old Testament concepts. Again, thanks for listening. And please take some time, like I said, to rate, review, and recommend to your friends the Rethinking Scripture podcast. Mm -hmm.